Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're also excited to launch the Salt Crypto Show, uh, which we've, we've launched a few episodes here in 2022. And, and this episode will be part of that Salt Crypto Show series as well. And our guest is Asen Kostadinov. Uh, he's the Chief Strategy Officer at Copper. He joined the company from MMC Ventures, where he led blockchain crypto investment portfolio. Uh, investing, and also led the fund's research department. Prior to his career in venture capital, uh, he spent four years as an equity research analyst at Barclays, covering European media and video and internet gaming companies. Uh, previously, Asen worked in the aerospace industry as an engineer uh, in the Airbus Flight Physics Division after completing his engineering degree in aeronautics and astronautics. Asen is also a chartered financial analyst, uh, chartered financial analyst a CFA, uh, so he has a, a wealth of experience across uh, physics, crypto, uh, as well as equity research and finance as well. So Asen, it's a pleasure to have you on. Again, very decorated background there. You're making me feel very unaccomplished uh, in my own my own background, but excited to have you here. Thanks um, very much, Tom. It's, I a, it's start, a pleasure to be here. I want to start a little bit uh, going into your personal background, because it is sort of a unique background to get into crypto. And you've uh, you've had your hands in a lot of different industries uh, and a lot of different spaces. Uh, what led you from being a flight physics engineer into being an equity research analyst? And then what was sort of your aha, or your your eureka moment that led you to take all those skills and experience and bring it into the crypto world? Absolutely. Um, great question. Basically, um, aerospace and, and engineering is a fascinating sort of discipline. Um, engineering is very useful to, to kind of understand things, uh, problem solve from first principles. So it gives you a great tool set and, and, and um, framework to making sense of, of problems. Um, the one thing uh, I did miss uh, while focusing heavily on, on the engineering side was actually making sense of the world. What was driving the world, uh, geopolitics, the macroeconomy? You know, as an engineer, you don't really have a lot of access to that. Um, and the aha moment for me around this was, uh, you know, around the euro crisis in 2010, 2011, 2012, when I was actually doing um, uh, my, my work at Airbus. Um, you know, you could clearly see that some of the operations and, and commercial activity of Airbus was getting impacted by that. And, you know, I had no way, no tools to make sense of that. Um, so that's uh, when I kind of started developing um, interest for business and, and some of the underlying principles that are driving, driving the world of economics. Um, that's what led me to kind of join um, Barclays um, after my engineering degree. Um, and, you know, as most uh, engineers do, they usually get into um, somewhat quantitative discipline in finance. And I actually joined uh, in, in risk. 
Um, and after spending a couple of years, you know, finding my way through the world of banking, um, actually this idea of being a, a research analyst really, really appealed to me because uh, it allows you to kind of take in information, start forming views and opinion. Um, and basically, um, you know, using arguments and, and again, first principles, um, develop opinions on, on how the world works. So that, that has then been kind of a forming uh, part of my experience, um, uh, uh, the, 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 the time I spent as an analyst. Um, you know, European media is an incredibly varied sector in terms of the business models um, that you employ and that you need to understand. Um, it's going, or it was going through a lot of disruption, you know, uh, the beginning of the 2010s were the time when Facebook was becoming prominent, Google advertising models uh, getting, um, you know, upside down. Uh, you had incumbents that had to defend themselves. Obviously, the world of video gaming is incredibly dynamic as well. A lot of new technologies and business models get get first tested in, in video games, right? Uh, nonetheless, crypto. Um, and actually, it was around that time that I was exposed to crypto. Um, um, I, in the beginning of you know the 2010s, um, I think I bumped into an article about Bitcoin. And uh, like most people, the, the first sort of hurdle I had to go through is reading the paper, understanding what blockchain was all about. Um, but at that time, I couldn't really apply to anything around me. So I kind of parked that uh, for, for, for a while. Um, and then I vividly remember around 2017, I was sitting on my desk, you know, doing my usual analyst work. And you would see those Bloomberg headlines of companies, uh, you know, stating that they're now operating in crypto uh, or they were issuing tokens. Um, and all of a sudden they're share price would would go up you know it was reminiscent to a certain extent um of the of the dot-com bubble uh, there was this particular it comp uh, ict company that um i think changed their name to to include blockchain or, or crypto and then all of a sudden their shares popped up 700 uh, percent um so i saw that side and that was not a beautiful side to see um and it was really during my vc days when i properly got into the space. Um, again, and as a, as a research analyst would do, I would um, try to understand the technology, try to understand the different participants in the ecosystem, talk to a lot of companies while trying to form a thesis um, in terms of where the investment opportunities lie. Right. And you know, all that led you to copper, which copper, you know, in my view, is one of the premier uh, players in the space in terms of solving problems for institutions as it relates to digital assets. So, you know, we we run Salt, but we also have Skybridge, which is the asset management side of our house. And, you know, we became enthusiastic about crypto and digital assets in around 2017, like a lot of people, as, as uh, you know, prices started increasing, we started studying it more and, and were enthusiastic about allocating some of our funds towards digital assets. But there weren't a lot of custody solutions at that time that ticked all the boxes that we needed as an institution to go back to our clients and say, with certainty, yes, we're, we're investing in these assets and we feel very comfortable with the custody solutions and other infrastructure that's in place to protect them. So how did Copper go about attacking this problem? What's, what's the novel approach that Copper takes uh, to, to serving the needs of institutional investors into crypto? Absolutely, very good question. Um, when, you look at, when you look at crypto, um, clearly, infrastructure is the number one thing that needs to be solved before mass adoption can occur. 
Um, and when it comes to institutional infrastructure, back in 2017, 18, even beginning of 19, this was very nascent. Um, most of the providers, um, and, and as a VC, that's one of the great you know, experiences that, and opportunities you have. You can speak to pretty much all the new young companies that are trying to you know, disrupt the space. Uh, there were plenty of providers trying to pitch for that big opportunity. Um, a lot of them, though, were approaching the problem purely from a technological and security uh, standpoint. And don't get me wrong. I mean, it's technology, right? It, that, that's a table stakes thing that you need to have, expertise in technology. Security, of course, another crucial aspect. Nothing is worth anything of what we do here without the security aspect. But beyond all, we're still talking about uh, an asset class, uh, a market that is being formed. Therefore, paying attention to financial services and how the financial services um, industry operates, the regulatory frameworks, the legal, the legal frameworks that are involved, is, uh, should be actually a top priority for everyone. Um, and I think crypto in general has been on a bit of a journey, kind of realizing this. Uh, and we're definitely much further ahead compared to where we were, you know, two, three years ago. Um, but back to your question, I think what really differentiates Copper is that we take this financial services first approach to the industry, uh, trying to create not just a technology product, but also a service that we provide to the buy side um, that would allow them to engage securely, compliantly uh, with, with this new asset class. And you know, digging deeper into how cop copper differentiates itself and approaches custody differently from some other institutional custodians, you know, there's this idea of of holding shards and and uh, separating out the different layers of security. Could you explain that? You know, we have a an audience that's a mix of you know crypto native people and also people that are learning more about the space. Could you talk a little bit more about that approach? And why yeah, obviously copper is deemed that it's the, the best uh, approach to security. Absolutely. So what you're referring there is um, the use of MPC technology, multi-party right. computation, um, which is really kind of the cutting edge uh, of, of key management at the moment. And when I say key management, it's actually a bit of an oxymoron because what MPC allows you to do is to remove the private key from the equation. So for most people that are familiar with crypto know that custodying crypto actually involves custodying a private key because the private key in, in the blockchain context allows you to sign transactions so that you can move assets from A to B. With MPC, that private key gets pretty much destroyed uh, upon creation and, and essentially it gets substituted by shards. And these shards are used anytime you want to move uh, assets or sign a transaction. In Copper's case, we use three shards. Um, and to sign any transaction, you need two out of these three shards to actually sign the transaction. Um, so why is that superior to some of the other approaches? Well, no matter how secure you can keep your private key, it is still a central point of failure. So it presents you with a big risk from the get-go. Eliminating that key and distributing it, decentralizing it uh, to a certain extent, allows you to be more secure. Um, but then it's also about how you manage these shards, uh, right? Where do they live? Who, who handles them? How do you resolve 
um, edge situation when situations when somebody loses their shard. And in our case, um, we give one of the shards, we give another one to uh, a client, to the client that is actually holding the assets with us. And a third shard is being kept with a trusted third party that is used for uh, disaster recovery. So if something happens to copper, then the client and the trusted third party can get access to the assets and move them safely to another, another wallet. Or if the client loses their shard, then copper and the trusted third party can together recover uh, the client's shard. And as with anything, you know, it's a, it's a balance that you need to take between convenience of use and security. Um, and at Copper, we've probably gone um, slightly more to the security um, um, sort of uh, edge uh, because we don't actually uh, allow clients to easily uh, sort of self-recover um, shards if they, if they lose some, uh, because allowing that functionality could expose the client to other risks uh, as, you know, hackers getting access to their machines and all of a sudden getting access to, to assets. Um, so we do involve uh, a bit more operational actions uh, in, in case that the client loses asset, uh, loses their shard, but that's all done with the best interest uh, of the client in mind. Right. And we always hear, you know, about this stampede of institutional adoption that's coming to crypto. Uh, and that, that could mean institutions as in hedge funds and traditional asset mm -hmm. managers. Uh, it could also mean institutions in the form of asset allocators like pensions, endowments, and family offices, sovereign wealth funds even. We're, what are you guys observing in terms of are those institutions moving into the space now or are they sort of waiting for greater regulatory clarity in different parts of the world, including the United States and in the UK uh, where copper is based? But what are you guys observing in terms of the momentum of institutional adoption? Excellent question. And I think in order to kind of get a true picture, we should probably first define what we mean by an institution. Right. Because sometimes what crypto um, native people refer to as an institution is slightly different to what traditional finance people would, right. would understand. Um, and to me, the real institutions are the big asset allocators, right? We're talking about uh, the endowments, the pension yep. funds, um, the large foundations. Um, and then a level after them are the large asset managers, you know, the Fidelities, the Blackrocks of this world. Um, so if you consider those institutions, they're still somewhat on the sidelines, right? The, the, some of them have started allocating to the space. All of them are considering their options, um, but, but you can't say that they're mass adopting the, the asset class at the moment. Right. Um, you know, the large allocators are mostly uh, coming into the asset via VCs, for example. There has been, you know, widely reported cases of, of large university endowments allocating to, um, you know, VCs that are, are actively targeting the crypto space. Um, the activity at the moment within crypto is mostly led by the crypto native firms to a certain extent. You know, these, these in most cases now are actually um, investment firms or hedge funds that have been um, founded by traditional people. You know, there has been a lot of migration from uh, talent from the traditional space to, to crypto, um, but they're still somewhat newer uh, on the scene. Therefore, they have uh, a lot more flexibility. What is deterring the very large 
asset allocators or asset managers uh, to to come into the space is as you as you alluded to regulation um, uh, in in the first place and then also some of the quirkiness that exists within the market in crypto so regulation is really the big the big elephant in the room um, you know we are getting more and more clarity almost by the day. I mean, the executive order that we saw from the US president really helped um, uh, in that manner. We are also seeing Europe being very active with, you know, Mika now expected to come uh, in force in the next six to, to nine months. Within the UK, uh, there has been a lot of efforts uh, in that direction to provide clarity. So things are moving, but we are not there yet um, so that these large allocators can be comfortable accessing the class and uh, the asset class and interacting with the underlying. Right. Um, the, the second point on the market, well, the market structure in crypto is still very nascent when it comes to um, the institutions uh, and institutional adoption. Um, you, If you observe, you know, in the traditional space, you have very complex uh, but established value chains of market participants that are involved to ensure that the market is fair and that investor protection is uh, is in place. Um, and the traditional market has also often been criticized for that because it increases the cost of operating in the market. Within crypto, we have the other extreme, which is almost entire, the entire market is represented by exchanges, which tend to, you know, act as liquidity providers, they tend to act as your um, financing providers, they um, also take care of custody, clearing and settlement. And that is the other extreme, uh, which is also not, not great, because it provides, it, it, it it gives rise to various conflicts of interest that need to be managed in a certain way. Um, when a traditional uh, sort of asset manager looks at crypto and the fact that they need to hold assets with you know, large exchanges in order to facilitate trading, that is definitely giving them pause. Um, you know, because these are not teams of just traders that are go going after alpha. You know, right. they need to comply with the, the, the different regulations. They need to answer to their risk team, compliance departments, who are very uh, sort of averse to operating in a market structure like the crypto market structure at the moment. So in time, we'll see that evolve. Um, I don't think it will evolve to the same extent that we have in the traditional world. There are good reasons why blockchain provides you with a lot of opportunity to extract efficiencies, but we can't be operating at the extreme that we are today. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, our definitions of institutions are definitely the same because we come from the, the traditional finance world. Uh, but I think, as you described, uh, you know, people in the crypto world, when they talk about institutions, they're referring to a combination of the large asset allocators and the large asset managers. And, you know, certainly the allocators that we speak to and it's reflected in the capital flows. Like you mentioned, there's a, a big appetite to get into this industry and get into this sector. And they're they're accomplishing that by allocating to you know, venture investments in the space. If you look at valuations of private companies, copper included, uh, you know, there's obviously been extremely bullish price action on, on valuations of private crypto companies. One of our theses at Skybridge is actually the tokens, because of uh, you know, the reticence from large institutions to allocate directly to a lot of these tokens prior to regulatory clarity, a lot of the money is instead flowed into you know, private capital in the space. So exactly. we'll be interesting to see whether you know, the, the coin valuations start to play catch up with some of the momentum that we're seeing in private markets. But 
talking about some of these private companies. So we have a very close relationship with FTX, as you mm-hmm. may know, and look forward to having Copper represented at our Crypto Bahamas event uh, that we're co-hosting with FTX uh, in late April. But FTX and, and other companies uh, have recently uh, integrated Copper's Clearloop technology. Um, what makes Clearloop a framework unique from other trading tools that exist in the marketplace? Absolutely. Um, so as I mentioned, our primary sort of ambition is to provide the infrastructure that would allow this space to get institutionalized. And custody is the first point there. Right. Um, the, the next one is actually resolving that market structure issues. Um, and there is a very simple way to look at it, right? In traditional space, you have the concept of the life cycle of the trade. So you have pre-trade, um, various data analytics tools, risk management tools that allow you to uh, determine how to trade. Then you have the trade execution, you know, matching of trades and so on. And then you have the post-trade, which is all about settlement clearing. Um, and what Clearloop really is, is the our ambition to represent um, the, or, or to take away the, the, the clearing and settlement um, from the execution, which happens on exchange. Um, and it's essentially the first of its kind, clearing a settlement network in crypto. It's the first kind of model of what a central clearing counterpart might, might look like in, in, uh, in, in the crypto world. Um, it allows you, as a client of Copper, to trade on exchanges while still keeping your collateral uh, safe in cold storage at Copper. Um, so it removes any counterparty risk that you might need to take with regards to exchange venues. Um, and of course, FTX is one of the you know, blue chip providers in the space, but we all know that you know, there are various exchanges, the, the liquidity actually in the space is quite fragmented. So uh, there is significant, especially from a traditional perspective, there is significant counterparty credit risk that an investor takes when they, uh, they need to hold assets at exchanges. The other thing it allows you to do um, is actually to have more efficient movement of funds and allocation of funds, which improves your capital efficiency. Um, so instead of you having to make on-chain transactions so that you can get assets to an exchange, um, you can dynamically delegate and undelegate um, assets to different venues at the speed of an API call uh, at Copper. Um, and last but not least, it's actually the fundamental infrastructure that we think will enable the space to move forward and offer you know, high value services like prime brokerage um, uh, in crypto in, in the right way. Um, you know, something like Clearloop will provide you with the uh, ability to do things like cross-marging across, of the, uh, across different venues. And that is really going to bring a step change in, in terms of capital efficiency. Because at the moment, you might be getting leverage um, and margin on, on two different venues, but they don't know anything about what you know, exposure you have on the other venue. So you need right. to margin these, these uh, venues completely independently. When in fact, you might be um, doing activity that is correlated and inversely correlated. So in, in, in theory, you're margin needs to be um, much lower than two times the, the, the margin at the venues. So it, it, the, the, the ambition behind this is really to move the space forward and to allow some of the traditional folks to, to come into uh, the arena. 
Um, and we know we know that this appeals to clients and to the buy side because now we've we've been speaking speaking not just with you know uh, the the uh, crypto um, native firms, but a lot of the traditional. Um, institutions, very large ones, which are very excited to see a model like this develop in the space that will allow them uh, to have a lot more flexibility. Right. And speaking of some of those large institutions or corporations, you know, it's very interesting to see you know, the legacy banks and some of the legacy custodians um, go through and try to analyze how to compete within the crypto industry against uh, companies like Copper and others in the space. And what you're seeing a lot of them do is collaborate with uh, mm -hmm. some of the more crypto native firms, including a State Street, I believe, uh, entered into a licensing agreement with Copper for some of your technology. Now, how are you working with existing corporations and institutions who are looking to uh, come up with their own solutions in an asset class and in an industry that's obviously booming, but they not, might, might not have the expertise to, to come up with their own solutions. So what's been the process for you and the dialogue with Copper, you know, working with people like State Street? Yeah, great question. Um, and look, the, the one thing that I didn't mention when we talked about institutions were actually the, the large banks, the large financial right. intermediaries. Um, they were probably the last ones to properly engage with the space. And that started happening very quickly beginning of last year. Um, my guess was um, why, why that happened was they actually saw a lot of demand coming from their buy side clients. Um, when, you, when you saw during the 2020, um, you know, various high profile asset managers or principles of asset management firms coming out and, you know, uh, embracing Bitcoin as a, as a possible asset class, um, that essentially spurred a lot of demand for some of the traditional uh, asset managers to get to start getting to, to start allocating to the space. So naturally, they went to their large uh, investment banks and asked, you know, what can you offer uh, in terms of products for us to engage with the space and, and get a location? Um, and of course, the banks did not; they were a bit behind the curve, not because they're not equipped. Uh, enough to deal with this issue. They were just hamstrung by, um, you know, regulation or lack of uh, clarity on what they are allowed and not allowed to do in the space. Um, so the then the the demand from from the the buy side though, and and some of these buy side firms pay hundreds of millions annually uh, each to to the big Wall Street banks. That was not something that that banks and bank management could ignore. So. Everyone started moving very quickly, racing to be the first one to the market um, to, to actually offer a, uh, a product. And I've never seen, I mean, I've worked at, at a large bank and I've never seen banks move so quickly. So to their credit, when they want to move quickly, they can actually put a lot of the bureaucracy to the side. Um, and don't get me wrong. I mean, these are very smart, very capable people. They can definitely develop some of these things in-house. But given the large structures, the regulatory regimes they're operating under, they don't have the nimbleness to kind of experiment and iterate as quickly as a smaller um, sort of emerging provider can. Um, therefore, quick speed to market for them is probably means partnering with best of breed technology providers. Um, and we've been fortunate, as you said, to be one of the premier providers in the space. So it's natural that we see and we, we, we have a conversation with a lot of the um, you know, players in the space. What was very interesting, um, you know, 
about the State Street um, relationship was that from the get-go, it wasn't a conversation focusing just on things like Bitcoin and Ethereum, which are today's problem. Um, it was much more focused on, you know, this, we think this will be the um, technology uh, that will underpin um, financial services going forward. And for us, this is a deeply strategic decision to be engaging and, and building for the future. Um, so it, it's really refreshing to see, um, you know, institutions thinking in, in that manner, because these are, you know, multiple decade old, hundreds of years old institutions. Right. Um, and I'd say, you know, it, it's really a partnership um, because, you know, if you if you consider copper as a custodian, I mean, we would never be looking to compete with some of these large institutions. They they have all the relationships and everything to really um, get the clients uh, on on their side if they have the right, if they have the right technology. It's much more how do you provide the right infrastructure so that <clears throat> they can get into the market in the best possible way and have the broadest access that they might require to satisfy their client needs. So the, the first thing obviously is getting the, the custodial infrastructure right. The next step of that is actually looking at things like Clearloop and how can Clearloop facilitate them to get in a safe way into the, into the market. How can then they enable things like prime brokerage on, on, on top of Clearloop? Um, so for us, Again, it's about building the infrastructure, the ecosystem uh, of providers so that we can facilitate this um, sort of institutional adoption or acceleration thereof. Right. I want to switch gears a little bit. And th these questions are less focused on your role at Copper necessarily, but it's fascinating to me that you came from you know, an equity analyst background uh, where you were covering mainly media, um, you know, video, internet, gaming. And a lot of our friends in the industry, a lot of my friends in the industry are very bullish on how crypto and Web3 can power the next generation of gaming, including going back to FTX. You know, they they recently hired Amy Wu from, from Lightspeed Capital to run their new venture fund. She comes from a gaming background. They then hired a Steve Saden from uh, Warner Brothers Games to run a specific gaming division within FTX. They're obviously extremely bullish on how gaming is gonna you know, be powered by you know, this new Web3 ecosystem that, that's building. What is your view coming from that gaming background and how you know, NFTs, Web3, blockchain is gonna transform the gaming world? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and, and look, this, this technology and a lot of the innovations that we are seeing, they are going to explode in gaming at some point right um i'm not talking i'm not i'm not giving any new insight here um it, it will take time though to get some of the underlying infrastructure developed and also to be honest to regulate it in the right way because when you start talking about nfts um and other tokenized things because anything these days can be tokenized you're actually talking about the financialization of different aspects of, of our lives and you know, gaming being one of those. So there is a question uh, about, you know, how do we regulate this? How do we protect people from, um, you know, getting hurt uh, by these phenomena? So in terms of, you know, one of the, one of the issues within, within gaming has been interoperability, right? We've seen various marketplace models uh, being developed where you know characters can could be traded or gear could be traded. 
there have been always issues um, uh, about how do you keep these markets honest? Um, how do you protect, um, again, gamers? NFTs, in theory, um, and, and some of the token models can solve these problems very easily. Um, but it all comes down to how do you how do you put in place the necessary infrastructure in order to, to improve adoption? And you need to have as much openness in, in the ecosystem as, as possible. Um, the good thing about, about gamers is that they tend to adopt things very um, easily. Basically, they are one of the early adopters of almost all new technologies. Um, and therefore, you know, there are a lot of experiments being run at the moment that, that I'm, I'm sure will lead to kind of fruitful efforts very, very soon. Right. Um, going back to copper for a minute, you know, you talk about how your goal as a company, whether it be from custody to trading, your goal is to create institutional infrastructure to, to take the industry forward. What does the future look like for copper? What things are on your radar as aspects of the financial industry generally or of crypto that can be, you know, further professionalized and institutionalized what types of mm -hmm. things are you guys working on? Yeah, I think the bit that I mentioned about Clearloop and, and uh, basically taking that to the next level so it can be um, kind of a viable candidate as a CCP for the space is um, kind of uh, number one thing on, on our radar. And as most things in financial markets, it's about having a very strong risk management uh, capability in-house, uh, you know, um, and to be fair, some of the, you know, exchanges have been quite good at um, things like margining models and liquidation engines. I mean, FTX themselves are a leader in the space. Um, but when you when you need to create that on a sort of market-wide level, you, you, you basically uh, need a very, very strong capability. Um, so without Kind of going into a lot into the secret sauce, you know, these are some of the things that we're planning. Um, there are a lot of exciting things when it comes to getting more traditional adoption into the space. Uh, we're talking to um, a few very large um, kind of buy side firms about ways in which they can get into the market. Um, there are also um, conversations with large banks about, you know, them using some of our infrastructure to uh, underpin not their custody technology, but other aspects of their business. Um, so I don't really want to, and in certain cases, I can't really share the details. Um, but, you know, definitely in terms of train of thought and direction of travel, it's really getting um, getting the underlying infrastructure in place so that you can bring institutional adoption when it comes to the to crypto, the next stage of that, very um, kind of logically, is how do you continue or extrapolate the convergence of crypto and traditional finance? And of course, a lot of that will be achieved via tokenization of traditional securities or traditional assets. Um, once you have a good level of adoption in terms of crypto, what that does uh, is almost it acts as a Trojan horse into the financial world because large banks, large asset managers, they would now have the ability to interact and to operate on that infrastructure. So moving and tokenizing a traditional asset would not require such a big leap of faith, right? When you, when you know how your back office, middle office needs to be structured, how your systems need to be structured 
to um, engage with, with, with new, these new types of assets, then it's pretty easy to see, A, what benefits uh, this new infrastructure brings to you, and also how some of the traditional assets can be modified to actually live a tokenized life. So when, when you talk about the medium term, probably, you know, two to five years ahead, I think that will be the big thing that a lot of industry uh, players will try to tackle, copper included. Right. Last question is a question we've been asking every guest that we've had on, on Salt Talks and Salt Crypto Show is, you know, geopolitically right now, obviously, we're in a very uh, tense time around the world with the Russia-Ukraine situation. Mm-hmm. Your uh, company, Copper, is based in Europe. You're from Europe. And, you know, to me, a lot of the events you know, ranging from uh, the invasion to the sanctions that have stemmed from that invasion coming from the United States and other Western powers towards Russia um, it sort of worked as an advertisement in a lot of ways for uh, crypto and, and the value of non-sovereign currencies and digital assets and things like that. What's your view on how um, you know, the, the situation that's occurring geopolitically is going to affect the perception and adoption of digital assets? Yeah, I, I would agree with you that it's, it's positive, I think, long term. Um, however, in the short term, you have to, you have to look at everything from a kind of risk lens, right? And when the world is being turned upside down, anything that's seen as a risk asset um, tends to not perform extremely well. And whether we like it or not, you know, crypto to a large extent or large parts of crypto at the moment, they're seen as risk assets, right? You know, I am all about, uh, you know, the different theses that people have about Bitcoin, for example, being a store of value, digital gold. I believe that may be true, but we're not going to see that unless we are at the mature state, right? When you have increasing adoption of an asset, it can't be, it can't behave as a, as a store of value necessarily, right? It will be inherently volatile. So um, I think it will be, it will be positive because, Look, it's not just the Russia-Ukraine situation. You, you've had um, the COVID pandemic before that, and the whole macro world uh, has been turned upside down. So there is no uh, illusion anymore that you know we can keep the current sort of regime operating for much longer. I mean, you, we're seeing inflation uh, kind of spiraling out of control than before. Russia and Ukraine. Now that will be challenged further with the conflict. We're also seeing a new sort of spike of COVID within China with whole regions being locked down. That will further drive inflation up. Um, and all of that would just contribute and exacerbate some of the problems that were inherent already in the financial system. So <clears throat> that will all be positive, but there will be kind of short-term pain. So for anyone kind of engaged in the asset class, the, the, I think the mode that we should have is one of balance, um, and, and definitely forward thinking so that we don't really overhype things uh, uh, and, and excessively takes, take risks, which might leave us kind of naked in, in the short term. Yeah, it's a great point about, you know, the, the evolution of Bitcoin. I think like you alluded to and actually our founder, Anthony Scaramucci, alluded to on CNBC the other day is that right now Bitcoin is still in more of its you know, it's an emergent technology. It's a you know, blockchain technology is still very new to the scene, and and Bitcoin behaves more like a technology stock than it it's does like digital gold. Yeah, it's a it's a startup. And then when it gets to saturation within the marketplace, when you have 
uh, pensions and endowments and sovereign wealth funds and and wider penetration, you know, within the global population, then it might take on those characteristics of being, you know, more akin to digital gold and being an inflation hedge and being, you know, a store of value. But right now, it's, it's much more a story of of a, a technology startup, like you allude to. So I think that point is is very well said. But Asen, it's been a pleasure to have you on Salt Talks. Uh, we, we've developed a great relationship with Copper. Uh, you know, very excited about about collaborating with Copper on a number of different levels. And congratulations on all the growth and, and finding your way into crypto and Web3. Uh, we look forward to seeing you in person soon. Thank you so much. It was great being here, John. And uh, thank you again, Asen. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Asen Kostadinov. Uh, from Copper. A reminder, if you missed any part of this episode, you can access it on our website. It's salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel or podcast feed. Our YouTube channel is called Salt Tube. We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. And please spread the word about these Salt Talks. We love educating our community, some of whom are already in the crypto world and some of whom uh, might still be skeptics, but we love educating people about uh, the exciting companies that are being built in the space like Copper. But on behalf of Anthony and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.